If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open up to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to be as we start a new series this morning. Uh, and uh, if you need help finding that, that's right after some of the bigger prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right after the book of Ezekiel. So you can open to Daniel 3 if you want to. I have a question to start out while you're looking for that. What are some of the things that you are most fearful of? What are some of the things that you are most fearful of? I would guess if, if there was a way that I could have this morning brought a snake, a mouse, and a spider, that almost every one of us would be a little bit scared to get close to one of those. And if I was bold enough to let those loose in the auditorium, we might clear out pretty quickly. But, but if those aren't the, your things, maybe it's heights or public speaking or small, dark spaces that can cause your heart to race and your palms to kind of start to sweat. But, but those aren't necessarily the things that I'm thinking of. I, I mean more so, what, what are the things that keep you up at night? What, what are the things that come racing into your mind the moment you wake up? What, what are the worries and anxieties that can easily distract you and cause your mind to run with all sorts of what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? What are the things that cause you angst as you look out into the future? What are the things that you are fearful of? Every year, uh, Chapman University does this thorough study to try to figure out what, what are some of the big things that Americans are afraid of. Uh, and their study in 2022, uh, this past year, showed that these were the, the top 10 things, the top 10 kind of categories that people are fearful of in the United States. The first is corrupt government officials. That was number one. Number two was people I love become, becoming seriously ill. Number, number three was Russia using nuclear weapons. Number four was people I love dying. Number five was the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. Number six was pollution of drinking water. Seven, not having enough money for the future. Eight, economic or financial collapse. Nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. And ten, biological warfare. Maybe your fears land somewhere on that list, or, or maybe they're completely different. But, but either way, I would guess you, you recognize, and it doesn't take much of a, an argument, to believe that fear is both one of the most universal and potent emotions that humans experience on this earth. Some would say that in our own cultural hour, we, we have become more fearful than at any other time. That we live in a, an age of anxiety or a, a culture of fear. And, and I think there is evidence that, that would point out to that being true. But, but even if that's not the case, we can still look back over human history and recognize that people have been fearful and anxious throughout all ages and all times. Perhaps that's why you've heard and maybe know that, that one of God's most common commands in the Bible is do not fear. This is one of my favorite things as I, as I pick up the Bible and read it to, to find fellow companions in the struggle with fear and to find a God who cares so deeply about our fears. However, that, that might lead us to think 
Fear is only always bad. And so what, what we need to do is get rid of all fear. But that would actually be to misread the Bible. Because just as the Bible so often says, do not fear, it also so often says, fear God, fear God, fear God. And and what we find as we pull these two strands together is that the wrong fears in our lives can ultimately be overcome by the right fear in our lives. That the wrong fears we have can only be overcome by the right fear. The the goal of this six-week series that we're going to do on fear is to discover how fear of God can actually free us from the lesser fears that we have in this life. And and throughout this series, we're going to look at specifically four different types of fear, four different kind of maybe bucket categories. Fear of uncertainty, fear of man, fear of suffering and death, and fear of failure. But, but before we look at those categories, we also need to, first of all, look at fear itself to better understand what is it and why are we afraid? And then also to better understand what do we mean or what does, it, well not what do we mean, what does the Bible mean when it says fear God? Because there's all sorts of confusion that can come up with that statement. And so this morning, we're, we're going to start by first of all, looking at fear itself to better understand the impact it can have on us. And then next week, talk more about what it means to fear God. And we'll do this this morning by looking at what is probably a familiar story in the Bible, the the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in what must have been one of the most fearful moments of their lives. There are three young Jewish men who've been taken captive to Babylon when Babylon's come and and destroyed their home of Jerusalem. And and things start to go well for them in Babylon. They they experience God's favor there, and they experience King Nebuchadnezzar's favor as he promotes them, and they become these influential leaders over Babylon. And then all of a sudden, what we find in chapter 3 happens. And so let's read starting in verse 1 in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dora, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And if you're familiar with the story, you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only ones who don't bow down to this image. 
and, and there's some other people who are envious of them. And so they go to King Nebuchadnezzar and kind of tattle on them. And then we find out King Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve, serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning that you would help expose where we might be fearful of the wrong things and how those fears have affected our lives and that you might instead replace it with the right and better fear of you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We, we can see both in this story and in so many other stories of the Bible, there, there's really tons that we could have picked from this morning. There's nothing so super special about this apart from this is the one that I decided. But that we can see the reason why we are often so fearful in this life. And, and it's this, or at least one of the big reasons, that we live in a fallen world and we are not in control. We live in a fallen world and we are not in control. One of the things that we're meant to see as we read about the Jews who are in exile, whether it's in the book of Daniel or in Esther, is that they're always only one step away from trouble. They're always only one step away from trouble. That things seem to be going well for them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have good positions and the king's favor, and things are going their way. And yet with one decision from the king, that all changes in a moment. Right now in my household, my family enjoys playing a version of the game Trouble that maybe you've played before. And if you played the game Trouble, you know that in that game, you are always only one roll of the dice away from trouble. Things can be going well. Your peace can be out. You can be honest. And yet, if someone rolls the right number, you're in trouble. And the same reality is what the Jews in exile lived under. And it's also the reality we live under, even though we may not live under a dictator, because we live in a fallen world. We are all only one step away from trouble. John Calvin, who lived in the 16th century, captured this really well when he tried to describe the type of threats that, that exist that we're probably not even aware of. Granted, this will, will sound maybe dated because of when he lived, but he says this, now wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted, but almost openly menace and seem to threaten immediate death. Embark upon a ship, you are one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the city streets. You are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. If there's a weapon in your hand or a friend's, harm awaits. 
All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. But if you try to shut yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night even to collapse upon you. I pass over poisoning, ambushes, robberies, open violence, which in part besiege us at home, in part dog us abroad. Amid these tribulations, must not man be most miserable, since but half alive in life, he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath, as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. Now, maybe you think Calvin's overdoing it a little bit, but I think he's exposing what we so often live with the illusion of, that we aren't one step away in tr- from trouble, when in fact we are. And, and we could update that list for our time with, with threats of war, threats of environmental disaster, inflation, economic collapse, cancer, and, and all sorts of other threats we live under. That, that when we stop to really reflect on it, we, we recognize we all live only one step away from trouble or disaster or tragedy. And, and not only that, but with that, we have far less control over life than what we think. We have less control over life than what we think. Another part of what the, these books that are written, to the exile, or written about the exiles are meant to do is to expose that even the most powerful people don't have the control that they think they have. And so Nebuchadnezzar thinks he controls his entire empire and he's going to unify everyone together around this, this worship of this image. And yet all it takes is three young men to say no. And all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar's control is imperiled. That's part of why he responds, I think, so angry. Because if these men can stand up to me, who else could? And I've got to make an example of that. All of a sudden, he feels things spiraling out of control. We we find that when kings and emperors like Nebuchadnezzar exalt themselves to the position of God, they end up discovering they don't have as much control over life as they think they do. And the same thing is true of us. Uh, I want to pause for a moment and, and think about this or draw out an implication of this for our time. Most people would agree that in 21st century America, we live in one of the safest places and times in human history. That, that, that technology and medicine and the amount of wealth we have give us a greater safety blanket than ever before. Again, don't, don't hear me wrong as if that doesn't mean that, that trouble isn't right at our door. Yeah, it still is. But we've got greater safety blankets than ever before in history. And yet, we also seem to be some of the most fearful and anxious people ever before in history. What, why is that? Those two things seem to contradict each other. And lots, lots of people have recognized this seeming contradiction. If life is safer and more secure than ever before, then it seems like we should fear less, but we're fearing more. Why, why is that? And, and there, probably, there, there are lots of answers that people suggest to that question. And there probably are multiple answers, but, but I want to suggest that what I think is one really big one. Because I, I want to suggest that this is one of the reasons why. That living in a secular culture we have removed God from the picture. We've taken him out of the frame. We, we have said there is no God who controls everything and rules sovereign over everyone. And so then instead, we've tried to step into his place and say that we rule sovereign over our own lives. 
and yet deep down we know that we're not qualified for that position, that we don't have enough power or enough wisdom to control life. And so we grasp for all the control we can get and are fearful of things spiraling out of our control. Maybe you could picture it in this way. Imagine yourself on an airplane today. Airplanes are safer than ever before. But somewhere along the line, you decided to kick the pilot out of the plane. And then we realized we don't know how to fly the plane. And so now we live constantly in fear of the fact that it's going to crash at any moment. I think that's part of why we are more fearful and anxious than ever before, because we've gotten rid of a good God who controls everything, and we think we can, and then we realize, wait, we can't control everything, and are fearful of it all spiraling out of control. But we can also plumb a little deeper and recognize our our fear is not simply connected to our lack of control in this life, but, but our fear is also connected to what we love in this life. We fear losing what we love. All of our fears, I think, are rooted in love for something that we're afraid to lose. Notice in the story, Nebuchadnezzar uses fear as a way to try to control and motivate people to to worship his image, to obey, or to worship the image he made and to to obey him. And, And what does he say? Bow down and worship the statue I made or die. What's what's behind that statement? If you love your life, you will obey me. If you love your life, you will obey me. Because if you don't, I'm going to take your life from you. What we love will shape what we fear. We fear losing a job or not getting one because we love the security and meaning that it offers to us. We, we fear harm done to our kids and losing them to outside influences because we love our kids. We fear a medical diagnosis because we love our health. We fear rejection because we love other people's approval. We fear death because we love life and what we have in this life. Look, look at anything you fear, and I would bet that there's something else you love behind that that you don't want to lose, which is the cause of the fear. And and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing in and of itself, but it becomes bad when it gets in the way of us loving God. It's really interesting. John draws this out for us very clearly, or gives us an example of this very clearly. In John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43, he tells us there about people who refuse to go public with their belief in Jesus. He says, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it. Why? For fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. Fear of the Pharisees. They, they wouldn't admit their belief in Jesus because of fear in the Pharisees. But, but, but what was behind that? For they loved human praise more than the praise of God that love for human approval or led to fear of the Pharisees who could take that away, which then led them to say, we're, we're not going to go public with our belief in Christ because we love human praise more than we love God's praise. And yet if they love God's approval and his praise more than human praise, that they would have ultimately went public with their belief in Christ. 
because the flip side of this truth is that love can help us overcome fear. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego loved their lives more than they loved God, they would have bowed down to this image in an instant. And yet by not bowing down, they displayed they loved God more than their very lives and were willing to put their lives on the line because of their love for God. It was love of something that was worth more that enabled them to be courageous and face their fears. There's this kid's book that I think displays this well. Uh, I use kid book as illustrations because that's a lot of the reading I do today. Uh, There's a kid's book named uh, I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. It's a great title. And it talks about a bear who's, who's afraid of everything and who has a friend who's a little rabbit and this bear and the rabbit go out on an adventure because the, the rabbit wants to go on an adventure. And along the way, the bear refuses to kind of do anything. He comes to a river and he says, that's too deep. I'm not going to cross it. He's afraid of it. He comes to the woods and he says, that's too dark. And so he gets a bus to go around it. He comes to a mountain and he says, that's too high. And so he gets a helicopter to get over the mountain. And eventually comes this bridge that's too rickety. He says, I'm done, and goes home, crawls into his bed, pulls his covers over him, and says, I'm not going back out. Then he gets word that his friend, the the rabbit, is in trouble and is about to fall to his death. And in that instant, the bear gets out of his bed, crosses the river, walks through the forest, and climbs over the mountain without a second thought. What what, what enabled him to be courageous in that instant? a love for his friend that was greater than any of his fears. See, it's ultimately a love for God and a love for people that can overcome our fears of losing what we might love that is less valuable. Think about how this could play out. Love for someone else's eternal well-being can help us overcome the fear of offending them or feeling rejected if we speak up about Jesus. Love for God can help us to stand up for what's true and good, even when it may cause us to be looked down on or marginalized. Love for God and and love for other people can help us to love people who are different than us, including those who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum than us, rather than demonizing them and being fearful of them. Love and fear always go hand in hand. And and a greater love for God will help us to overcome our fears of losing things that are of less value. But, but, But the trouble with fear is that it tempts us to take our eyes off God. Fear seeks to turn us away from God. We know from this story, like I already said, the the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to this image and Nebuchadnezzar gets furious, right? Maybe you can picture a cartoon character who has a beet red face and steam coming out of his ears because it tells us he was in a furious rage. And he calls them before them and gives them the second offer to bow down. And then we hear these words in the midst of it in verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
Again, Nebuchadnezzar tries to use fear to control and enslave these three young men. And it's fear aimed ultimately at their confidence in God. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, look at my furnace over there. Do you see those flames? Who is your God that you think is going to keep you from those flames? Fear tempts us to believe God can't be trusted. Nebuchadnezzar is essentially saying, maybe your God could be trusted back when you were in Jerusalem and on your home turf, but you're in my house now. And do you really think your God can be trusted here? Fear would have us look at some area in our lives and ask, do you really think God can be trusted there? You really think God can be trusted there? The the future, maybe God can't be trusted there, so maybe we should worry about it and get anxious about it. Our our needs, maybe God can't be trusted to meet them, and and so maybe we should be anxious about them. Your your kids or your grandkids, maybe God can't be trusted with their lives, and and so we better fear all that might happen to them. Do, Do you see what's so insidious about fear? It tells us that the one who is supremely trustworthy, God, can't be trusted. So we better be afraid. We're like a little kid who stands along the edge of a pool and our father is standing in the midst of the pool and he's got his arms open and he's saying, jump, I've got you, I'll catch you. And yet we look at the water and we say, man, there's a lot of water out there. It's really deep and I don't know how to swim. I'm not sure. I don't think I can trust my dad to catch me here. Fear would have us look at some area in our lives and say, I I don't think that I can trust God here. So I better be afraid and try to do something about it. And and Nebuchadnezzar is not only saying your God can't be trusted, but he's also saying you shouldn't obey him. Fear can prevent us from obeying God in our lives. Just just think with me. What, What is it that most often keeps followers of Christ from obeying God? or causes us to disobey him? Isn't it fear of what the results might be if we do obey him? Fear of what might happen? I mean, think about what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. If you obey God, you will die. We we might never face that scenario in our lives, but we face lots of other scenarios that maybe we can compare to it. Fear says, if you tell the truth, rather than lying, you will look bad. Fear says if you don't partake in pride month and show your affirmation, you're going to be marginalized marginalized, and you're going to be seen as hateful. Fear says if you speak up about Jesus in the workplace, neighborhood, or school, you're, you're going to be ridiculed and shamed. See, fear would say you don't want that to happen, so you better not obey God here. Or even think, just think in your own life, if you sense God calling you to some new place or position or endeavor in your life, isn't fear almost always there saying, you better not do that because it might not work out for you. And fear keeps us from stepping out in faith and obeying God. Fear fear can control our lives and decisions, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do in this story. And then fear can lead us to worship something other than God. Nebuchadnezzar is essentially painting himself out as the savior in the story. 
and saying, if you worship me and my image, I can save you from your fears, right? Isn't that, if you worship me and you bow down to my image, I'll save you from your fears. So stop and think with me for a moment. Why, why is it that politicians across the spectrum today in their campaigns almost always use fear more than anything else? Why, why is that? Like, why is it that we're, we're, be afraid of this, be fearful of this? Because then they can set themselves up as a savior who can deliver us from those fears in some sense. Are, are you fearful of America becoming a socialist country? Then, then vote for me, I'll, I'll save you from that. Are, are you fearful of America becoming a fascist country? Uh, vote for me, I'll save you from that. Fear is used in such a way where, where politicians start to sound a whole lot more like saviors than simply elected leaders. Ne- Nebuchadnezzar just has more power than our politicians, so he can simply say, vote for me or I'll kill you. Fear in any area of our lives can easily cause us to look to an idol that we think will keep our fears at bay. Michael Horton puts it this way. He says, we all have our sweet tooth. Such a good image. We all have our sweet tooth for some idol or another, depending on the main fear from which we trust it to save us. So so if we fear inflation and the rising cost of living, money can really quickly become our idol where we think if I have enough saved and I have enough invested and I've got enough in the bank, that then I'll be safe from that. Or if we fear failure, then success and achievement can quickly become our idol, where we think if I do enough, I can keep that fear at bay. Or, or, or if we fear harm coming to our kids and what might happen to them, well then parenting techniques and strategies and ways to keep them safe can, can become an idol where we think I can control the, the outcome of their lives. Or if you like, you're like me and you, you fear what people think, then human approval can really quickly become an idol that can keep the fear of man at bay for just a little bit. But, but what's the problem with a sweet tooth, as Michael Horton describes it? A sweet tooth never has enough sugar and always needs more. And in the same ways, our idols, we always need more from them. They can never actually release us from our fears. They can only keep their, our fears silent for a very short time until they come raging back in again. The the right response to our fear is not to turn away from God, but rather to turn to God in fear. There are certain lines in the Bible, and when you come across these, I would say highlight them. There are certain lines in the Bible that I think are just kind of like mic drop lines. And we find one of these in Daniel 3, 16 through 18 in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read it in the NLT this time because I think it captures a little bit better the power of their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set 
That's incredible. Do, do you hear what they're saying? Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to fear you because God is on our side. And he's so much bigger than you and that little puny furnace that you have over there in the corner. God is so much bigger than anything we might fear. And, and the bigger that God becomes in our eyes, like the more we realize how big he is, then the more our fears start to shrink in size. There, there, there's this great scene from the Disney movie, Pete's Dragon. It sticks out in my memory for some reason, where, where this little boy, little 10-year-old boy named Pete is walking through the woods and he comes across a grizzly bear. And the grizzly bear gets up on its hind legs as tall as it possibly can be. And it roars at the top of its lungs. And little Pete doesn't flinch. And you're like, what's wrong with this boy? Is he crazy? That's a grizzly bear. And yet then you see behind him the head of a massive dragon popping out from the trees. And you realize you don't have to fear a grizzly bear if you have a dragon on your side. You don't have to fear King Nebuchadnezzar if you have God on your side. Who, who is Nebuchadnezzar in the face of the God who made everyone and everything and rules over it all? What, what is inflation in, in the face of a God who has infinite riches? Like you think God's up there crunching numbers saying, oh no, I didn't think about this. No, and he can meet all of our needs and promises that he will. What are the next four years in our country compared to a God who has no beginning and no ending? Do you think he's saying, man, this is the, really, the most important election in history, and if they get it wrong, no. He has no beginning, no ending, and it's perfect in wisdom. What, what is cancer or any other disease next to the God who made and designed and rules over every single cell in your body and my body and every single atom in the universe? See, we tend to latch on to our fears and fixate on them when God calls us to look at him and fixate on him and see how much bigger he is. And not only that, but also God is better than anything we might fear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not only know how big God is, but they also know how good he is. I wonder if the words that Isaiah wrote to the future exiles in Isaiah 43 were ringing in their ears as they were standing before Nebuchadnezzar. There, Isaiah said, but, not, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. See, if we know that God is good and ultimately for us, then we're able to say, even if God doesn't deliver me from my fears, even if he allows the worst case scenario to happen in my life, I trust him because I know he will only always do what is good. And, and we see what's played out in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's scenario where God does display his bigness and his goodness by rescuing them from the flame and by sending either an angel or, or maybe a pre-incarnate Christ to be with them in the fire. But we read the story and we know, well, God doesn't always deliver us from our fears. There are lots of saints throughout history who have burned for their faith 
And there are lots of times where our worst case scenario might come true. And so when we face our fears, we must ask, well, how do we know that God is good even if he does let the worst happen to us? And we can look and see that God doesn't just send someone to be with us in the fire, but he sends someone to go through the fire for us, ultimately. That, that we see Christ on the cross facing a far greater fire than we'll ever face. The fire of God's judgment in our place, taking it on himself for us. Seeing that God is willing to die for us, to rescue us. So, so if that's what God has done for us, we know that if he doesn't deliver us from our fears, it isn't because he's not big enough to be able to or good enough to be willing to. But rather, it's exactly because he's so much bigger than us and so much better than us that he may actually allow us to face and go through our fears because he loves us and knows what's best for us and can bring good even from those things. Last summer around this time, uh, my son needed a surgery to remove a hernia or fix a hernia. I think I shared this maybe last summer. And we were trying to prepare him as much as we could for this surgery, kind of what was coming, what to expect. And even though we tried to prepare him so much, he was still scared ultimately when the surgery came, as I think probably any three-year-old would be. And the moment where the surgeon and the nurses came to get him and take him back, there was just this immediate terror in his eyes where he started to cry and even scream. And it's like, it's kind of hard to remember the scene because of just the fear that I saw in his face in that moment. And, and, and I told him, I said over and over again, Oliver, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Maybe, maybe the equivalent of God saying to us over and over again, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, Kyle. Now, I, I could have feasibly, I think at least, stepped in and stopped that surgery because my son was afraid and said, no, 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 we're not going to do it. He's too scared and not let them take him back. Yet, yet I knew the surgery was actually what he most needed. J just like I would guess any of you parents who are here today, I would lay down my life to keep my son from something that might harm him. Yet I would also let him go through his fears because I know that ultimately they aren't harmful for him and that the surgery is what he most needed. God has shown us he is willing to lay down his life for you and me because that's exactly what he's done in the gospel. And yet God is also willing to let us go through the things that we might most fear because he knows that in his hands they can't ultimately harm us. And, and when you believe that and when you know that and like deep down it sinks in, that, then you don't have to be afraid in this life. We have to free afraid because we can say, my God is bigger and better. So I will trust him and I will fear him no matter what. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, we want to be the type of people who are not enslaved or controlled by the fears of things in this world, but who live with a type of courage and boldness because of our fear in you and our faith in you and because we know how big you are and how good you are. 
God, we don't want to be people who, when we face fears, we, we try to look inward and, and think, how am I going to do this? And, and try to get onto all the control we can. But, but we want to be people who, when we face fears, look up and look to you and who say, my God is big and my God is better. And so I will trust him. And then to walk with confidence, even into our fears, knowing that you will be with us and for us in the midst of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.